to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, but because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is righteous, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Zoom in with me to verse 20 again. It's a famous verse. It's a verse used especially perhaps when people are giving a public call an opportunity to respond to the Lord for the first time, to to invite him into their hearts for the first time. But have a look again, and it is a shocking verse, don't you think? Let me read it again, see if you can see why it's shocking. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Why is it shocking? It's shocking because this is a letter to a church and Jesus is outside the door. That is what's meant to surprise us. Jesus is outside the door of the church. He's outside the room. This is a letter to Christians. And whilst we might use verse 20 then as a helpful call, perhaps at times for people to trust Jesus, better still maybe it's a call for Christians to to open the door again and let him back in. The Christians who have walked out on him or maybe even better pushed him out of the door and shut shut it after him. And we'll see as well, there are churches that look legitimate and alive and active and keen. But he is not there anymore at this point. Before we dive right in though, and try and work out how they've got to that place with him outside the door, I want to give a brief recap of where we've come. To say, to try and kind of catch you up, to try and give you some thoughts and ideas and reminders, perhaps over the last six or seven weeks and before Christmas as well. Remember, it's a collection of letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And if you remember from the map at the beginning, you kind of start in the bottom left, the southwest, and it works its way up to the top, um, up, up, up the coast, and then back down again further inland. And we said each week this is, these are historically unique situations, specific people, specific churches, specific things going on. Real problems, real struggles, real persecution as the temperature is turned up. And real victories, real encouragements, real warmth from Jesus at times as well. And we said seven though is interesting. Seven is in Revelation terms a picture of perfection, of completeness, 
of totality, of being finished. And so whilst in one sense it is specific letters for specific churches, specific contexts, specific situations, specific suffering, the fact that it's seven means it's for everybody. It's not just one specific church in one place, it is all churches at all times. And so I think week by week, at least I've found, huge challenge and huge encouragement as I've heard the words of Jesus to those churches but to all churches. It's not just there and then, it's not just a quaint history lesson, it is for us here and now, in our context, in our situation. It's for you and me. Let me try and um, sweep over them just briefly perhaps give you a couple of thoughts to remind you some of the things that we've been looking at. We saw in week one, Ephesus were faithful, but they had forsaken their first love. In fact, as you look at the structure of the letters, you'll see week one and week seven are very similar. Ephesus and Laodicea have got some very similar things, and that's deliberate. Week two was Smyrna. We saw they were a persecuted church. They were faithfully pressing on. They were keeping going. And week two and week six, in fact, are very similar. And week three was Pergamum. Pergamum, a church facing opposition. Remember, they were facing opposition and they had slipped into sexual immorality. They were compromising. Thyatira in the middle was a church kind of doing okay. They were doing okay, but there were some gullible folk who had been sucked in by some false teaching, a a self-appointed prophetess. She said she had special knowledge and she gave herself special titles and they had believed them. Week five was Sardis. Again, looking great on the outside. Dead on the inside. No relationship with God. They had lost the gospel. Week six, Philadelphia last week. Persecuted, opposed, oppressed. Keep going, guys, says Jesus. Remember who I am, remember my power, remember my sovereignty and keep going. And this week, Laodicea. And as with each week, I want to try and give you, if I can, an opportunity to just sort of take you around the city. Um, You'll see, hopefully, why we do that, because I think each context is quite important. And so as we try and get into the minds of Laodicea, and as we try and look around the city slightly, then we'll see some of what Jesus says and why he says it and what it means. Um, Laodicea was about 90 miles southeast of Philadelphia from last week, so we're working our way down again and we've reached the bottom. It's about 90 miles east of Ephesus, so think of a kind of horseshoe. We come all the way around again. Um, and we're, we're as far south as we go. It was a wealthy town. Apparently it was a strategic banking centre. There was a massive earthquake in AD 60. But amazingly, the folk from the city had used their own wealth to rebuild the city. They had no handouts, no financial aid from Rome. That shows you the kind of wealth we're talking about. Able to redo their own infrastructure. As well as banking, apparently it was famous for soft black wool. Um, And apparently medicine as well, particularly ointment for eyes. Which, as you'll see, is important. The other thing that's really key um, for Laodicea was they had a very interesting water supply. Apparently it had to be brought in from, from miles away through an underground aqueduct, about five miles in that underground aqueduct from a hot spring, brought into the city so that they could then treat the water and drink it. They led us here a city of comfort, prosperity, self-sufficiency. And I have to say, more than any of the other letters, this is the one that has made me think, this is a message for the church in the West. In our comfort, in our prosperity, in our self-sufficiency, 
I just wonder whether we are overly layered to sin. Maybe we even miss it. Our blind spot for how much we have and how lukewarm we can be. So let's try and work out what's going on. What is this problem in Laodicea? How has Jesus been removed from the room? How did we get to verse 20 where he is outside the door now? How's that happened? Have a look at 15 to 17. I think that's our way in. Verse 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of your mouth. You see, he knows their deeds... They're active. They're still doing stuff. They've still got a busy timetable at church. They've got all kinds of things rotated in. But he says they're neither hot nor cold. Maybe, maybe like us, they know what it means to sort of slide into autopilot at church. We just do that because that's what we do. It's what I do on a Wednesday. We have home group on Wednesday because it's Wednesday. Or I set the alarm early on Thursday morning to go to the prayer meeting because that's what I do. There's my community there and they expect me to be there and so on there. Or I head to church on Sunday, morning and evening, because that's what I do. That's the expectation. But they're neither hot nor cold. They're just doing it because that's what they do, rather than the one for whom they do it for. The striking thing, the language of hot nor cold, again, is important because it, it picks up this idea of the water supply in Laodicea. So as I say, that the water had to be brought in from five miles away through an aqueduct. And it came from hot springs. And by the time the water arrives, though, it's not hot, it's not cold, it's lukewarm, it's unpleasant to drink. And in the ancient world, hot water was used as medicine or as washing. Cold water was used as refreshing, drinking. In the middle, it's nothing. It's no good for either. Um, studies show as well that there, was, there were deposits found in the Laodicean water, which may have meant it was still safe to drink, but potentially induced vomiting, which again is why you get the language from Jesus, I think. He is speaking in a way that they understand into their context and their culture and their framework. So we miss it because we don't know quite how they think, but he knows how they think and so he speaks in a way they will get. This water was not good for them, this water would not produce life and health for them. So the city has no water to supply life and health. And the church is behaving in a similar way. The church is neither hot nor cold. There's neither healing for the spiritually sick. There's neither refreshment for the spiritually weary. The church is like the water. What does Jesus say? Verse 16. It makes me sick. He doesn't just ignore it. He says, it makes me sick. I will spit you out of my mouth. And maybe if you're like me, you'll feel the strength of some of that. Because that is a challenge, isn't it? There's a conviction there. Maybe at times you feel that lukewarmness of your faith, that mediocrity. Perhaps the way you started off zealous as a Christian, but... For whatever reason, we sort of drift. The worries of life crowd in on us. 
I think we shouldn't be surprised at what Jesus says. Again and again through the Gospels, he will call on wholehearted devotion of his followers. He will say things like, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus wants his followers to be on fire for him, on mission for him, not to simmer down into a tepid faith, to middle-aged mediocrity. I look at myself. Paul told his followers to follow him as he follows Christ. To be fervent and zealous in spirit as they follow Christ. To fan into flame the gift of God that's in us. It's convicting, isn't it? I think it's meant to unsettle us. Perhaps it's meant to unsettle a Western church that has grown half-hearted and lukewarm. Neither hot nor cold. But I take it we need to do more than just be convicted. It's easy to, to look at the Bible and to feel that challenge and to think we've kind of engaged with it and met with it and I go away feeling a bit kind of bruised and beaten, but there we go. What do we need to do now? We need to work out the reason and the solution, I think. How have they got to this place? How have we, in fact, got to this place where we are half-hearted and mediocre? What's gone on? How have they become neither hot nor cold? Well, have a look at verse 17. You say, Laodiceans, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. See what's happened? You see that they are using their natural eyes, their own eyes, their selfish eyes even, to see the world rather than to the eyes of faith. They... They look around Laodicea and they see the world just like everybody else. Rather than how Jesus sees the world. They think they're wealthy. They think they're self-sufficient. They say we're rich. Jesus says you're in a really bad state actually. You've really missed it. Maybe they say God has blessed us. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the way he blesses his people. Faithful people get money, get stuff. It's just a kind of argument employed by um, false teachers today. It's likely they've been um, engaging and compromising with the pagan trade guilds. We've seen them again week on week on week. Pergamum, Thyatira, they've compromised in their faith. The church is full of self-satisfied churchgoers. They say, I am rich, I have prospered, I am self-sufficient, I need nothing. And look around Laodicea and you'd be right. A city full of bankers. Maybe in the pews you had people who worked in the banking industry. Maybe you had people who worked in cloth industry. Maybe you had people at medical school or who sold drugs. Maybe their church was very rich. Maybe they were proud and smug of the way they hadn't had to ask Rome for money to help with the earthquake after the devastation years before. And that pride and that self-sufficiency of the city seems to have crept into the church. They look at themselves, they think they're rich. Jesus says, you are blind and you are naked and you are beggars. You are wretched and you are pitiful. They were spiritually poor despite their banks. They were spiritually blind despite their eye salve and medicine. They were, they were spiritually naked, despite the clothing, despite the wool, despite the industry. They said they needed nothing. We're fine, thanks, we're good, we can get by. 
Jesus says, you can't get by without me. You can't manage without the grace of Christ. And neither can we. And here's the challenge that I've thought this week. Here's the thing that I've been chewing over. We live in a culture where we are pretty self-sufficient. In the West, more so in Oxford even. In relative terms, the majority of us will be wealthy, will be satisfied. We won't have to worry too much about money. We won't have to worry too much about income. We might not say, verse 17, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, I am rich. But, but we might be a people who, who have that default mode in our hearts. Self-sufficiency seen in lack of prayer. In trusting self. Too easily God becomes the life mechanic and we visit last resort because we can't do it alone. And something twigs and we think, ah, I've not prayed. Why did I forget to do that? I just wonder if Laodicea is the West, the Western Church. We wouldn't say it, but we kind of think we're we're okay. Jesus says, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind and you're naked. Why are they lukewarm? Why are they neither hot nor cold? They have bought the lies of, of wealth. And all that wealth brings, hook, line, sinker, copy of angling times, they bought the lie. That seems to be the reason. That seems to be why Jesus ends up outside the room, verse 20. Because they think they're self-sufficient because they have loads of good stuff. If that's the reason, then what's the solution? Verse 18, I love this. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. You see, they didn't know it. Jesus knew it. You are spiritually poor. You are spiritually naked. You are spiritually blind. And I'm the only person who can do something about that, says Jesus. He can make them rich. He can clothe them. He can make them see. Come to me, says Jesus, verse 18. They thought they were self-sufficient. But they must come to him as the sufficient one who can give them what they need. Church and Laodicea, you're poor, but I have goals. You're naked, but I have clothes for you to cover your shame. You're blind, but I can make you see. How does he do that? Well, we'll think about it in a bit, but I take it he does it through the gospel. Through his good news. As he dies on the Friday and is raised again on the Sunday, so he becomes truly poor that we might become rich. So he is truly naked and shamed that we might have clothes to wear. Clothed in righteousness. He, he dies, his body entirely stops so that we might have life, that we might see our need of him, that he might open our eyes to our need of him. Through his death, through his resurrection, as he died on the Friday and raised again on the Sunday, so we are rich and clothed and we can see.
And as we empty ourselves, so he fills us. As we humble ourselves, so he gives us what we need. One writer says this. When a church is spiritually poor, only Christ can make it truly rich with the kind of gold he offers. When a church is blind, only Christ can apply the ointment which enables it to see its own need and to renew its vision. When a church is naked, only Christ can clothe it with his righteousness and his character. Which sounds great. But I wonder if there's a but. It's interesting, the kind of riches that he offers is is gold refined in the fire. I wonder if that points to the reality of suffering that will come for them. That language of gold refined in fire points to hardship. It points to a faith that's been tested. A faith that's been shown to be authentic. To be mature. And so you wonder, when they stop trusting self, when they stop feeling satisfied in themselves, when they stop compromising and jumping into bed with the the local society and the local pagan temples, and they start to follow him properly, then maybe that will mean they turn away from what they were doing. That they stick out even more. They don't engage in pagan, pagan worship. They don't profit from dodgy economic practices anymore. They will begin to count the costs. They will begin to pick up their cross. And life will get harder. And faith will be tested and gold will be refined in the fire. Do you see verse 19? Do you see why Jesus tells us this? It's because he loves us. It's because he loves them too much. He, he might be outside the door. But he's not given up on them at this point. He wants us to stop sleepwalking along in their sufficiency, their self-sufficiency, their false self-sufficiency. Verse 19, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. The discussion we have in our house sometimes as parents, uh, with our kids, And they say, if you loved me, you wouldn't discipline me. You wouldn't take away the things that I want or stop me doing what I want to do. And I say to them, why do I discipline you? Why do I say no to you? Why do I not let you do all the things that you want to do? Or why do I not give you all that your heart desires? Because I love you and I want the best for you. Well, so as Jesus comes speaking to this church in Laodicea, he, he loves them too much to keep quiet. He doesn't want to spit them out. He doesn't want to vomit them. And so he rebukes them and he disciplines them. And he calls them to repent. He calls them to turn back to him. To turn around. To come and buy gold refined in the fire. To come and wear new clothes. To come and see again. Come to the one who can make you truly rich and truly clothed. And truly able to see. I think we have to ask ourselves, as I ask myself, what does it mean to be lukewarm? 
What does it mean to be neither hot nor cold? What does that look like? What does that mean in my week? And I take it he asks us more than just what does it mean, but he asks us to repent, to turn back to him. And then we reach verse 20, which is where we began. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And so the question there is, will we let him back into the place of intimacy and fellowship? It is a personal appeal to an individual. It seems it's written to a church, it's a corporate letter, but it is a personal appeal to individuals. He, he does stand at the door and knock. And he does say, will you let me in? He won't force his way in. He won't bang the door down. There is a response needed but he will come in and eat with you. Eating that picture of fellowship, that picture of intimacy. We saw it this morning in John 4. picture of friendship. And for the one who does, the one who does open the door, if if he's knocking and you say, come on in, then it's not just a little meal. Verse 21. It's a thing for eternity. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, it's striking because repentance may mean, in Laodicean worldly terms, it may mean humbling ourselves. It may mean recognising our lack of self-sufficiency. It may mean turning away from power and prestige in Laodicean terms. But actually, in his eyes, it results in being lifted up, sitting with him on the throne. And so I think Jesus says, with the eyes of faith, will you trust me? Because with Laodicean eyes, it all looks a bit weird. And in Oxford eyes, it all looks a bit weird if you deny yourself and if you humble yourself. But he says, if you trust me, I will lift you to be with me victorious forever, verse 21. And that might mean suffering now. That might mean not the easiest life now. That might mean difficulties now. But later it will be glory as we share the throne with him as he shares with his father. He says it will be worth it, friends. Trust me. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. Lord Jesus, we... We confess to you our lukewarmness so often that we are neither hot nor cold. We confess to you our self-sufficiency. We confess to you the, the way that we so easily believe the promises of wealth. At times we can barely see it. We confess to you our blind spots. And so we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes. We pray that we might trust you. We might seek to to see as you see things rather than as Laodicea or Oxford sees things. Lord, we come to you to buy gold refined from the fire so that we can be truly rich 
We come to you for white clothes to wear. That we might be truly clothed in your righteousness. We come to you for salve. To put on our eyes that we might truly see. We come to you afresh. Trusting in the gospel of grace. Be at work in us, we pray. Humble us where we need to be humbled. And in your time, lift us up. In Jesus' name, Amen.